0: You're risen, I can rise. Because you're living, I'm alive. Because your cross is powerful, because you rose invincible, I can get up off the floor.
1: Now, I was thinking of the concepts that are, or the ideas that are central to Christianity life, death, judgment. Resurrection, redemption, forgiveness. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other ones, but those were the ones I was thinking about. And on Resurrection Sunday, uh, the two big ones, of course, you know, there's, well, actually, they're all part of Resurrection Sunday, but, you know, I'm thinking life and death, right? Life and death. And Jesus Christ died for our sins. He didn't just go into another place, He died. But I was thinking, you know, if a if a minister finds any of these topics that I just listed objectionable so that he can't give them their due time in his sermon and he's not preaching the gospel, the gospel requires all of this. I was thinking of a quote and I've read this quote before. uh, It's by A.W. Tozer, and it says the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in such a way as virtually to deny that he is also just which the Bible also teaches others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it is made to contradict his holiness or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys or at least greatly diminishes his goodness and love. We can only hold the correct view of truth by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. It is a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation, such features as he in his ignorance deems objectionable. Now I think that is just everything. Isn't that great? Go to Hebrews chapter nine. Uh, My dad used to always say when I was a kid, you know, there's only two things that you can count on death and taxes, (laughs) death and taxes. Well, the Bible says there's two other things you can count on, or two things. Look in uh, Hebrews 9, look in verse 27. It says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. How about that? So those are two things you can count on. Every person that now draws breath will one day die, unless what? Jesus Christ comes back. But besides that, death is an, an inevitability, right? Everybody know what an inevitability is? Jake, you know what an inevitability is. It's going to happen, right? It's bound to happen. There is no escaping it. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, look in verse 2. It says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, where death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Now, how about that? Isn't that something? The living should take this to heart. Most people would say, well, don't bum me out, man. Right? don't kill my buzz, man. (laughs) But death is the destiny of every person. You know, uh, I've told my wife this. I I think i probably even shared it in fellowship. But when I was a kid and we would drive past the graveyard, I was always fascinated with graveyards. And the thing that fascinated me with it was the sheer finality of it that these people once were alive and now they're dead isn't that something i mean i i know that's probably to some people stating an obvious point but it used to really confound me i mean it was it was too much because as a young person you know life is to be lived everybody's living but here are these people once lived but now are dead And it was very profound to me. And it wasn't something that I lost. I I carried this with me, and it was actually one of the reasons I became a Christian, right? You know, why am I here? Where am I going? What's my purpose? You see what I'm saying? So for a lot of people, death isn't necessarily a driving point. It's not something that really they spend a lot of time thinking about, but we should. The living should think about death what about death think about how it's a lot of people they spend a lot of time you know they'll investigate deeply all kinds of things but they won't investigate death you say what happens with you what happens to you when you die oh i go to heaven we all go to heaven yeah, even dogs go to heaven <laughs> but the point is is that it's an area that makes people uncomfortable and it's an area that i think we should feel entitled to talk about we should talk about with people go to Ecclesiastes 9 and look in verse 2 it says all share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked the good and the bad the clean and the unclean those who offer sacrifices and those who do not as it is with the good man so it is with the sinner as it is with those who take oaths so it is with those who are afraid of them This is the evil of everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, what? They join the dead. They join the dead. Something else, right? They join the dead. And it's interesting, if you look at this, that it's not like they, you know, Join a party somewhere else. It's the state of the dead, right? This idea of gravedom. And when a person dies, they don't just go to live somewhere else. They don't just pass over. They die. It's death. It's the ceasing of life. Now, I was thinking about how, you know, it says here that they are uh, full of evil and their madness. And there is madness in their hearts as they live. You know, that I was thinking about that, that, you know, humanity, the insanity of humanity, you know, each generation thinks, you know, they come in with aspiration. They're going to change things. Right. And they're full of hope and expectation. They have the greatest intentions only to leave disillusioned and disenfranchised. I mean, it it's you know, it's the cycle of life. People come in expecting and leave, you know, dis disappointed. Um You know, outside of, of course, the word of God and the true the truth of this whole thing is that everybody dies and there are no exceptions to that. We read we read before that man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. Well, it goes on in verse four. It says anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. It's kind of an interesting phrase. So Solomon here is saying death is better than or life is better than death. Verse 5, and the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Okay? There's no consciousness in the grave. When you die, you just cease to be. It says they have no further reward, and even the memory them of them are forgotten, or is forgotten. They love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they be a part in anything That happens under the sun. So there's no such thing as reincarnation. You're not going to die and go through and cycle back as, you know, another animal. You get one shot at this thing called life, and then you die. That's what the Bible teaches. Go to Job. Now, uh, Job 14. Now, Job is one of the older books in the Bible. I think it is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written in the 7th century BCE. It actually, you know, relates to uh, events that happened before Moses was born. So that's how they're able to date it. Um, But Job 14, it says in verse 10, it says, But man dies and is laid low, his breath his last, or he breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Isn't that something roused from their sleep? So Job, even at this early time, recognized that when a person dies, he's dead. He's dead. Death is a state. It's the state of the dead. We refer to it as gravedom, right? That's it. Uh, Job uses here the euphemism of sleep, right? That you're going to sleep. And Job acknowledges that, you know, that person will remain in that state until he is roused from his sleep. And this is an acknowledgement of the resurrection. In Isaiah 26, you don't have to turn there, but it says, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Isn't that cool? You know, that's, by the way, that's the verse that really gives the understanding behind that notion of that Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead, that the earth gives birth to her dead. Uh, But anyway, in Job, in verse 13, it says, if only you would hide me. In the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. So remember, Job is under the gun here. He's talking to God and he's saying, God, I can't deal with it. Your, you know, your, your darts are within me. You know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And he says, if only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call, and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. So, so, Job is recognizing that there's something else, right? Go to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to keep coming back here. <laughs> Verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Okay? Go to Revelations 20. Revelations 20. So, the two things. Death. Death. And judgment, death and judgment. Now, of course, we know that a lot of our Christian brethren believe that when you die, you go somewhere else, whether it's heaven or hell. So you are not dead. You are just living in another place, right? Um, They refer to death as somebody is in hell, right? So you you see, you, you guys know this, right? All right. So this is common belief. And in fact, I've been kind of, uh, you know, uh, going back and forth with people on, on uh, Twitter on this whole notion of death. Right. They swear up and down. Death is actually life somewhere else. It's not. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you die, you are dead. OK, Hebrew or uh, Revelation 20 and look in verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So we have death, and now we have judgment. And I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened so now this is a uh, this is a figure right here this is referring to the dead, meaning that these are the ones who were raised from the dead who are facing death right and it and it, it says another book was opened, which is the book of life, and death or and uh, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades, that word Hades is means the grave, okay? And the grave gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Verse 14. Then death and the grave, Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the what? Second death. If anyone's name was found, was not found, in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that there are two deaths, right? That a well, and it's not necessarily for everybody, but if you are you are raised from the dead for the first death, and then what? You are judged. You are judged. And if your name is found in the book of life, you live, continue to live. And if not, you die. The second death. Why is that so difficult for people to grasp? And the, the, the point is here is that Christianity has bought into this Greek understanding that you are living from everlasting to everlasting, an unbroken line of life, right? So when we talk about death, we're not really talking about death. We're just talking about a relocation, (laughs) right? That's Greek. That's not Hebrew. That's not the Old Testament. But Christianity made that conscious decision back in three, four, five hundreds to adopt the Greek perspective. A lot of Judaism did too, by the way. Isn't that interesting? So we have two deaths. We have the first and second death. The first death is uh, initially temporary in the sense that, you know, People are raised from the dead. All men are raised and then have to stand before the judge Go to. Well, I, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Uh, Romans six We're very familiar with this verse. We read it in this fellowship a lot. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Death was never God's intention. It was never his intention. God always desired life and eternal life for mankind. Death is a retribution, right? The wages of sin is death. Remember in um, Romans 5 where it says death entered into the or uh sin entered into the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men, right? So, it is just a reality of being human that we are falling under Adam's sin. So, death and judgment are our destiny. OK, death and judgment is the destiny of all mankind. And God, he's a gentleman. God, if you choose to die for your own sins, God will oblige you. You can die for your own sins. But if you choose to have another die for you, if you choose another path here, God will accommodate you. Go to Hebrews chapter nine again. You guys are going to know this first by heart. When we get done with this teaching, Hebrews chapter nine, look at verse 27. It says, just as man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. And we read on. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Isn't that awesome? I love it. And that's Christianity. That's Christianity. All men will die. All will be raised. All will be judged. And if judged unrighteous, will die again. And that's what the scripture says. However, there God provided a wild card, didn't he? Jesus Christ. That we all deserve death. Absolutely. But Christ died as a sacrifice. Go to Job chapter 19. Now, of course, Job lived before Christ, right? But he had a glimpse into God's heart. Job loved God, knew God, and knew that God, with all his judgment, was a redeeming God. Job chapter 19, verse 25. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yea, in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me! Now this isn't talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about God, the Redeemer. That God is the author of the plan. You see that? Uh, this this corresponds well with Ruth, where it talks about the kinsman Redeemer. But Job saw this. He saw this in God. He saw that God is a redeeming God. He isn't. You know, God doesn't desire to be a vengeful, harsh, wrathful God. He desires redemption. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. God is a redeeming God. I was talking to Franco yesterday, and he reminded me of this verse. Um, Look in verse 6. It says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? You know, you can't put up with a little bit of evil. Eh, It's just a little bit of evil. Paul's saying, look, don't you understand? A little bit of evil, it goes a long way. It says, get rid of the old yeast that ye may be a new batch without yeast. And then it says, as you really are for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Wow. Interesting. So this Passover lamb, this idea of a Passover lamb, we we read earlier about the sacrifice in Hebrews, right? That Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. And here we're reading about this Passover lamb has been sacrificed, right? And this idea of sacrifice, you know, the notion of sacrifice, substitution, right? That one would substitute their life for another, which is very biblical, by the way. It's throughout scripture that you have this notion of the Passover lamb. This lamb, this goes back to Israel in captivity in Egypt. And God delivered them from their captivity. And how did he do this? Well, it was the Passover. That each Israelite family would take a lamb of the first year without blemish and spot, meaning it was, it was a perfect animal, and they would slaughter it. And they would take the blood from that lamb, and they would paint it on the doorposts of their house. And then they would take the lamb inside and eat it, right? Isn't that something? And then, when at, I think it was midnight, when the destroyer passed over, any house that had the blood on the doorpost was left alone. But any house that did not have the blood painted on the doorpost, the firstborn of every family, it said the firstborn of the family, how'd it say it? The firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, the firstborn of the prisoner who's in the dungeon, the firstborn of the cattle, everyone, all of them died. So the only people that were protected were those who were protected by the blood. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus Christ is our Passover. I think that's cool. And, you know, I remember once upon a time, you know, when I was first getting into the word and somebody said, well, you know, this whole thing with the blood, you know, They were trying to teach me one point, but they ended up kind of messing another one up. And they were trying to teach me that, you know, the Catholic Church was all about the blood, the blood, the blood, you know. And it, and it, it simply it was a figure of speech that meant that the blood represented the death of Jesus Christ. You know, the part represents the whole. Well, that that is true. That is true. But there's more to it than that. There's this whole idea of the blood protecting the occupants of the household. The blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Only those who were protected by the blood's or the lamb's blood were uh, kept alive. And Christ is our Passover. His blood protects us. I think of Ephesians, Ephesians one, where it says in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So it goes on. In first Corinthians in verse eight, it says, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread, uh, but with bread without yeast. Right. The unleavened bread, the bread of sincerity and truth. So this is the idea of the Passover brought into the Christian church through Christ. Right. This idea that the sacrifice was a substitution. that Jesus Christ died for us, for our sins, that he paid the price so we wouldn't have to. I love that. He paid the price so we wouldn't have to. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. This is foretold in the Old Testament, and some people got it, and some people didn't, right? And in verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of the ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. I've always thought that was a curious phrase, familiar with suffering. Jesus, he thought deeply on the condition of man, death, disease, He didn't look at diseased people as being a buzzkill. He felt their pain and he healed them. Um, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Isn't that something? So here's Jesus. Jesus is... You know, it was foretold that Jesus would be dying for humanity's sin. And yet, you know, the Pharisees were looking at him like he was the sinner. Right. He was getting what was coming to him. And I think that's Oh, I was asking Chris, uh, I was like, who's that murderer who got set free? And it was Barabbas. Right. Remember Barabbas? So they they would rather have had Barabbas set free than Jesus. And it's the same today. I mean, here Jesus Christ offers grace to humanity. And what does humanity do? Well, they mock and ridicule him. Isn't that something? I mean, thats I've never grasped that. <laughs> that there's nothing that brings out the, the ire in a person more than the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isn't that true? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. That's great. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So when Jesus Christ died for our sins, he died for our sins. He ceased to live. He wasn't somewhere witnessing to imprisoned spirits He was dead in every way imaginable. Jesus Christ was dead, and then God raised him. verse 9, it goes on to say, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was truly the innocent blood. Remember what it says about in Hebrews, that he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, yet without sin, that he was truly the innocent blood. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was that lamb without blemish or spot who died for us in place of us as a substitution for us, that we had it coming to us. Absolutely. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ paid the price. I've got goosebumps. (laughs) I mean, do you get that? It is so spectacular. I I just, it's so amazing. It goes on and says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. I love that. So, Right. He was he was cut off from the land of living, the living. And now he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isn't that great? Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that great? <laughs> I just love it. That's just so good. And we're gonna end up, well, we got a couple more verses. Yeah, we got a few more. Uh go to first Peter uh chapter one, first Peter one, and look at verse eighteen. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. (laughs) That's something man loves to, you know, thump his chest and say, man, we're great, you know? And, uh, and it's not like that. The Bible says your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Verse 19, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. You ever ever hear a conversation on the preexistence of Christ? It's It's a raging debate, even among Unitarians, whether Christ was alive before his incarnation, right? What does it say here? It says that Jesus Christ... That he was chosen, or the word for chosen there is foreknown. He was foreknown before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So that pretty much answers the whole pre-existing question for me, right? He was foreknown in the mind of God. Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. How about that? When a person gets born again, what do they what do, they do? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And what does the devil do? He says, well, death really isn't death. You see how he gets squirrely in there and messes with people's doctrine? So... Remember what we read earlier, that just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many persons. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And we're going to finish up here in Acts chapter 2. So I I was thinking Acts chapter 2. Originally, I was going to teach on the resurrection throughout the book of Acts. But this was a verse that really got me. This was the first sermon of the Christian church. And so you really see how central this whole notion of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is to the whole Christian experience. OK, so chapter uh, this is Peter talking Look in chapter two, verse 22. It says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. That's quite a statement, isn't it? We talked about that not too long ago. He was a man accredited or credentialed by God. God put his stamp of approval on Jesus and said, he's mine, right? And God worked miracles through him, okay? Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Was he dead? He was dead. Right. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? Because he was life. He was God's eternal plan of redemption for mankind. Verse 25, David said about him that I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Right. He said that back in Psalms. So David said this. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you did not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence, right? So there's me, 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 right? First person. And so the question that a, a Psalm reader would ask himself is, is David talking about himself? Is he the Holy One? Is he the one that won't see death or decay, right? It says, brothers, verse 29, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, <laughs> And was buried, and his tomb is still with us, which means that what? He's still dead. He's in he's been cut off from the land of the living, hasn't been resurrected. Verse thirty. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Isn't that excellent? On his throne, the kingly Jesus, verse thirty-one. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. He got him up from the dead. He raised him and gave him the light of life. Isn't that something? And you see that that was by promise. It was promised in the Old Testament, and God fulfilled it. Well, does God promise anything for us? Yes. If God fulfilled that promise, He will fulfill the promise to us. Absolutely, because God is not a man that He would lie. He goes on here and says, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. That is Christianity. We are witnesses of the resurrection. We are witnesses of the resurrection. How? Did we see it? No but we have Christ in us. It's the reality of the Holy Spirit within. That is why we are witnesses of the resurrection. Verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear, which is what? Speaking in tongues. For David did not ascend to heaven, as uh, yet he said, the Lord is at my right hand, sit at my right hand at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what did it say there? David did not ascend to heaven. That means he's dead. He's he's still in the grave. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. We thank you thank you, Father, for your Your honesty and truth on on the realities of death and judgment. Father, we know that they are staring us right in the face. Father, we thank you that you gave us Jesus Christ, and that it's through Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. We thank you for the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that we have such a wonderful hope. I thank you for all these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.